All right, good morning. It is great to be here today. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Genesis chapter 14. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or devices, whatever you use, uh, we'll be spending a little bit of time there this morning. Um, I thought it's kind of ha- almost, we're almost done with the summer. Uh, school starting in just a few weeks. I thought, what more exciting than studying an obscure character in the Old Testament? I know. Um, hope you had your coffee for this one. But uh, I want to look at the story of Melchizedek, but to do that, we have to start in Genesis chapter 14. Now, in Genesis chapter 14, there's actually some pretty cool things that are happening. There's a, a epic battle that's going to be happening, and the text tells us several times that it's, it's five versus four. Like, it, they want us to kind of know this is a, an important battle. But Abram is going to be involved in this story because that's kind of Genesis up to this point. Like, we, we get a, a ton of Abram up to this point. And in Genesis chapter 12, Abram is called. Uh, also in Genesis chapter 12, you have the epic story of Abram and Sarah in Egypt. In Genesis chapter 13, you have the story of Abram and Lot deciding which direction that they're going and, and then separating their, their inheritance, their money, everything. Lot obviously going to Sodom and Gomorrah, Abram going in a different direction. And then we find ourselves here in Genesis chapter 14, where um, at that time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Ariok, king of uh, Eleazar, and Kedor Laamor, king of Elam, um, and these other guys, these kings went to war against essentially Sodom and Gomorrah. And so there's this, this big battle that is brewing against these, these two sets of kings. And it says in verse 3, All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years they've been subject to uh, this king, but in the 13th year they rebelled. Now, I love maps, so let's go ahead and pull up this map to kind of show us where we are. It should be the next slide, I hope. Yes, great. It's super tiny. So uh, if you know where the Dead Sea is, we are having this battle right below the Dead Sea in the valley of Sittim. And it's going to be, it's kind of heavily rooted with some tar fields there. So it's going to make the battle a little bit treacherous. But it's important to know where we are because the Bible gives us locations. And it does this because it's, it's teaching us like what's happening and why the, the characters are moving the way they are. And so we find ourselves a little bit below the Dead Sea in this valley. And eventually the story is going to move northwest. But for right now, this is where we are. So in verse 10, Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits. And when, uh, when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Now, I mentioned a second ago that in Genesis 12 and in 13, we're getting a lot of Abram. We're getting a big, healthy dose of Abram at this point. He's the main character. He's the main focus. And up until verse 10, we we didn't get a ton of Abram. We, We get these kings, and we get a little bit of Lot here. But we're basically told that just so we can reinsert Abram into the focus of the story. So all this stuff happens basically to bring our attention back to Abram. And so Lot is, is taken by these other kings. We, we're told kind of the geographical location so that we know that the, the battle was treacherous. It was difficult. That basically they, they gave up when the tar field slowed them down and they started scattering everywhere. Now I mentioned a second ago that this is where we get Abram again. So in the next passage here, uh, starting in verse 13, a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite. 
a brother of Eschol, or Anaor, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that, this, that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and routed them. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and other people. Abram is, is the hero of the story. And for the most part of the story, he is the focal point. He is who we are paying attention to. He is really who we have trained ourselves to pay attention to in the story. And I'm, I'm, I'm framing it this way because that's kind of what we do a lot in Scripture, is we look at this main character and we focus on Abram and we're like, this is the guy. This is the special character in this story. And then when God inserts other people into the story, it's kind of hard to give us for us to give that character our full attention. But that's what happens in the story, is we're so focused on Abram that sometimes we miss what God is trying to do. Maybe God is trying to show us something that's unexpected when our focus is just so much on Abram. And so in the next passage, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. We'll pause there for just a second and think about this, because there's some things that Melchizedek does that are very similar to things that we do, right? Kind of some foreshadowing into Luke chapter 22 or some Levitical text about tithing. Like Melchizedek does some stuff here that we as Christians should recognize as like, this, is, this sounds very familiar. But what, what often happens is we look at stories like this and we're just like, that's super cool. Let's go back to Abram, right? Because Abram is this cool guy. He's just defeated all of these armies. He's rescued Lot. He's defeated these kings. He's, he's redeemed God's people. But all of a sudden, like, Abram is not the focus. And it, it's honestly kind of weird when you look at the story because the roles are kind of reversed. Like, the way that I read Scripture a lot is that, like, Abram is the central figure. Like, Abram is the person who should be blessing people at this point. Like, Abram is the one that comes on behalf of God Most High. Abram is the one that, that should be offering hospitality and this bread and wine. Like, Abram should be doing that, but all of a sudden, like, the roles are reversed to Melchizedek is doing this. And so we, we have to think, like, who is this guy? And that's like where this story becomes super fascinating to me. Because Melchizedek is only mentioned three times in the scriptures. He's mentioned here in Genesis chapter 14, in Psalm 110, and in the book of Hebrews. That's it. The only occurrence that we have of Melchizedek doing anything physically, like where he is talking or, or walking or doing anything, is right here in these three verses, 18, 19, and 20. Then he's gone. That's it. That's all that we have of this guy. Even the reference of Salem is unique. It's not a, a prominent place in Scripture. Now, Psalm 76 references Salem basically as Jerusalem. So we know that there's some kind of connection to Jerusalem that Melchizedek has. But the larger point is there's this almost like mysterious figure that comes into the story of Genesis 14. He's here for four, three verses, then he's gone forever, until the writer of uh, Psalm 110 and the writer of Hebrews reference him. I thought a lot about, like, 
mysterious or unexpected people that come into our lives. Um, I, I've, I've been in ministry now since 2019, or 2009, um, because I was like, the math really leaves me. But I started ministry, and I wasn't a math major, didn't do math. Um, but I started ministry in 2009 in Madisonville, and I was, uh, I know you're looking at me now, you're like, you're so confident, you've got it all together. I, I wasn't then, weird laughs, but um, in 2009, like, I was, I was scared to start ministry. I had an internship under my belt, I had Bible classes, but like, I mean, the, the elders of that church, like, trusted me, they knew that I was ready, but like, I, I didn't know that. And so they're like, all right, let's, let's go for it, like, you're our person. And so I, I start in ministry in 2009 at this, this wonderful church in, in western Kentucky, and um, there was a, a group of ministers that met every Tuesday. And, and at first I was like, I don't know. But they were like, look, we pray and then we eat. And I was like, sold. Like, where are we going? Let's go eat. I'm, I'm ready for this. You know, you get me with food. I was, I was okay with the prayer. I was there for that. But the food is what really got my attendance, you know, through the roof. And so uh, I started meeting with this group of ministers on every Tuesday. We would go to the bottom in this basement in this Methodist church in Madisonville. As a group of ministers, we would pray. We would talk about ministry. We would just, uh, you know, I think share our concerns, share like ideas that we had. And at the time that I started, there was an individual who was on their second leg of ministry. It was a Southern Baptist uh, student pastor. Her name was Angie Winders. And Angie had already tried to retire from her church once. But the church was like, look, you're a person. Like, we need you. This church needs you. Like, you've got to come out of retirement. And so Angie, at this point in her life, was, I don't want to give her age, but she was, you know, north of 60, trying to get out of student ministry. And, like, essentially the church just wouldn't let her. They're like, you're a person, like, we need you. So Angie is trying to leave student ministry, and here I am trying to get my feet settled in student ministry. I struck up a friendship with this woman so fast. Like, her, her energy, her excitement, even like her passion for working with students was so captivating to me. And we would, we would go to lunch, and then there would be these, probably these weird scenes where we're at like this Mexican restaurant, and like Angie and I are at the end of the table, and we're talking about ministry ideas, and people are like, how do they know each other? Like, why are they friends? Like, what is the deal here? But I gained so much wisdom and guidance and just experience from Angie, like her, her willingness to share with me and teach me. And like, she would let me throw ideas off of like youth ministry, like for youth ministry things, like ideas that like kids would have gotten hurt, but like I wouldn't have been in too much trouble, you know? And she'd be like, don't do that. Like, do not let the kids do, you know, roof stuff. Like that's, you don't want to do that. But like, her, her ideas and her guidance was so valuable to me that, like, I, I think that I'm still in ministry now because somebody that was unexpected in my life was willing to guide me. Now, it would have been easy for me to be like, look, we, we have different denominational views, we have different backgrounds, different experience levels. Like, you're, this is the second attempt of you to try to get out of ministry. You know, like, on paper, it looked like we shouldn't have linked up and that there shouldn't have been, like, a, a well of knowledge, but it was there. And it would have been so easy for me to reject it that, like, God was trying to work through this moment. But, but something within me, maybe the desperation of, like, wanting to do good at my job, that I just, I leaned into it. And we, we became friends. And I, I still, to this day, at times, will reach out to her and just say, thank you for, like, being so kind. And thank you for listening to, like, all of my terrible and probably dangerous ideas. And it's one of those things, like, when we miss those moments, like, when God is trying to insert somebody unexpected in our lives, like, it's so easy to reject it and say, like, that doesn't fit the parameters of what I expect. 
It doesn't fit into the box that I have for my life or for my plan or whatever. But God is trying to say, like, hey, if you're just paying attention a little bit, like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to bless you. I'm trying to do something in your life, but you've got to be willing to say, look, okay, like, where are we going with this, God? And I believe that's what's happening in the book of Genesis chapter 14, where God is trying to show his audience, like, hey, I know that you're so focused on Abram. Like, it's cool. He just defeated all these people. He just rescued Lot. Like, yes, that's cool. But there's something else that's important that's happening in this story that if you reject it, you're going to miss it. If you immediately say, like, oh, okay, he's just a king that brings in bread and wine, like, whatever, like, you're going to miss it. But, but there's something that is special here about Melchizedek that if we just gloss over it, we miss what God is trying to do, especially in the life of Abram. Because Abram accepts it, too. Think about that. Like, it, the story doesn't go, then Abram rejected the bread and wine from Melchizedek, or he, like, rejected the blessing. Like, that is not how the story goes. Abram accepts it, and he welcomes it. And so when Melchizedek offers bread and wine, too, is a little cup and a little, you know, plastic on it. Um, when he offers, anyway, um, when Melchizedek offers this, Abram takes it, and he accepts the blessing, and, and it's, it's this powerful moment where this, this priest, there's this kingly blessing that happens from Melchizedek when the roles are reversed, but, but blessing comes from it because Abram welcomes it, even though it's from an unexpected source. Now, we move forward in, into the Old Testament when we see in Psalm 110 where Melchizedek is referenced again. In 110 verses 2 through 4, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of your battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so you start seeing this language that, that Melchizedek is special. There's something that's happening in the life and the teaching of Melchizedek that we, as readers of Scripture, should pay attention to. It's not just this run-of-the-mill guy who comes in and offers bread and wine and does this blessing. Like, it's something that we should notice and recognize. And although Psalm 110 is important, it, it's really in Hebrews where we start seeing, like, what is the application of Melchizedek to our lives? And so in, Psalm, or excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, the writer of Hebrews is starting to attempt to explain how Jesus can be understood as a priest, but not in, in the sense of priest that people of that day would have understood a priest to, to operate and function. And so in order to explain this new understanding of what a priest does or how Jesus can be understood as a priest, the writer of Hebrews goes back to who? He goes back to Melchizedek. And so he writes, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And when he heard, when he was heard because of his reverent submission, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is not a Levite. He's not in this kind of this biblical priestly line. He's, he's someone from the outside, someone that doesn't fit the mold. He's somebody that's special. He's somebody that's almost mysterious. He's somebody that comes in in Hebrews 14 quickly and then leaves, but he does something so powerful that when the writer of Hebrews is trying to think, like, how do I describe Jesus in this new way? How do I describe how Jesus could be functioning as a priest in this way? 
the person of reference that the writer of Hebrews goes to is Melchizedek. Now think about this again. Like, to our knowledge, there's only two references of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 and in Psalm 110. But it's, there's such an impact there that when the writer of Hebrews is trying to articulate this, this is the person that he goes to. And continuing in Hebrews chapter 6, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did, did this so that by two, um, by two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then continuing in chapter 7. If perfection could be attained through the Levitical priesthood and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. So Jesus is said to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a priest of God Most High, who is a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of his indestructible life. That is why Melchizedek is is time and time again mentioned as a priest forever. And when the writer of Hebrews continues with trying to explain how God works in new and fresh ways through already existing structures, the image the writer comes back to again and again and again is Melchizedek. It's, it's crazy to me that out of all of the sources, out of all of the wisdom, out of all the teachings that this individual who's writing Hebrews could have used, he goes back to this obscure character that we see in Hebrew in Genesis chapter 14. So why does he do that? I think it's to show us that when unexpected people come into our lives, we have to be willing to see, like, what is God doing here? We shouldn't just immediately reject those sources of wisdom, those sources of truth, those sources of, of blessings. We should be willing to say, God, what are you trying to do by inserting this person in my life? Like, what is there to be gained from this relationship? God, what are you trying to speak into my life by using this person whom I I don't know, who maybe I don't expect, or maybe, God, I'm not familiar with. God, what are you trying to do here? And he concludes in in chapter 7 with verse 14 through 16. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. In regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of his indestructible life. There is, is something profoundly powerful that, that occurs in our lives when we do not limit our understanding of how God works and how God is working in our lives. I think that's why this story comes back to us in Genesis chapter 14. It's because so often we look and we say, God, there's no way that you could work through this person. God, there's no, there's no way that you're going to work through my life in this situation. But maybe God is, is trying to break through that by showing us unexpected sources of wisdom. It is so easy to look at this story and limit our understanding to Abram and ignore that God is working through Melchizedek in this moment to teach us something. These were people who I believe existed and lived. These are human stories that bring us together in order to remind us that God is working even though we cannot always see or understand what God is doing. 
That's why the story of Melchizedek comes in Genesis chapter 14, is we're so focused on Abram. God inserts this new character to say, hey, even though you can't see everything that's going on, like I'm still working through people. I'm still working through stories, through people, through humans. Even though you, you, your focus right now is on Abram, there's other things that are happening that shows you that God is always working. And I don't know if you're like me, but at times I've, always, I've wondered, like, God, what are you doing here? Like, God, why, why can I not see what you're doing in this story or this season or in this moment? But maybe God is actively working behind the scenes on our behalf so we just can't see it. And so today, what I hope that we take away from the story of Melchizedek is that maybe when, when somebody comes to our life and offers us bread and wine, we don't reject it. And maybe this, this new season of our lives where we look at these stories and we see that God is trying to do something, even though we don't expect it or we don't recognize it or we're not familiar with it, that maybe God is trying to bless us in a way that, that we are we're unexpected. We weren't prepared for it. But it doesn't mean that God isn't working. And so the story of Melchizedek is, is weird. Because it's, it's a story that encompasses three, encompasses three just quick verses in the book of Genesis. But it has a powerful impact on how we understand God and how God is working in our lives. Because God is always working in our lives, even if we can't see it. And so this week, my, my request for you, my, my prayer for you as we begin to depart is... When somebody comes into your life that you don't recognize, or in this next season of your life, if, if somebody new comes in and you're like, oh, this person is interesting, but I don't think I could learn from them, be willing to say, you know what, maybe that's a Melchizedek moment for me. Maybe this person has been inserted into my life or placed in my life so that I can gain wisdom, a blessing, something from this individual that maybe I'm not familiar with. Because God is always working in our lives. We just have to be willing to accept the bread and wine when it comes to us.